Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is episode 11, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, today we thought uh, we'd just mix things up a little bit and have some fun. Uh, Fun sounds pretty good right now in, in the midst of all of the anxiety and tension and upset Pepto-Bisbal moments of the last uh, week or two weeks. So we're going to have a little fun. Um, I, I was just leading uh, our small group of teenagers in our home. We have a Tuesday night gathering of about a dozen teenagers in our home every every week, and uh, we met last week on election night, so we met around a meal and had a kind of abbreviated small group, and then uh, with the kids, we watched the election results. And I said to them at the start, you know, um, we what Bible says that we are created in the image of God, and children, their whole entire day is made up of play until you start collecting barnacles as a kid, and you grow into an adulthood, and you start getting responsibilities, and then play gets squeezed out. But our natural state coming into the world is play. No matter where you are in the world, if you're a kid, you play. But we never think of God or Jesus playing. We just don't think of them in that way. So I asked the kids, what do you, th- what do you think looks like play for God? And they, of course, just stared at me awkwardly. And I said, well, I think play sometimes looks like just adventuring with Him, tr- risking with Him, doing something that is dependent on Him, but, but you're not on the line. You're just having fun taking a risk with, with Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. I call it playing on the playground with Jesus. So if you think about running up to the playground and there's all these different things you could play on, the, the jungle gym, the, the swings, the slide, whatever, it's just various things you could go play on. So we're going to play on one of the playground equipment today. So if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. Uh, I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, the Becky Nader. Hello. And today, Hello, there's Becky Nader. But by the way, Becky Nader just revealed to us before we started recording this that she has independent control of her eyeballs. <laughs> I which have is, two lazy eyes that I can control. Apparently they're not lazy because she can control them. So she can make them do, like slaves, what she wants them to do, independent. I, I've never seen anything like it, and I wish I could unsee it. So anyway, that's Becky Nader. But we also have another friend with us today, Stephanie. Uh, some of you may know her because she's the writer of many of the things that you have read. These brilliant things that you have read and are using as devotions in your everyday life, or that have um, invited you into a deeper relationship with Jesus, Stephanie Hilbury is the one who wrote those. She she wrote the seven-day devotional on living Jesus-centered that so many of you are now, right now, using. So, Steph, why don't you tell uh, everybody a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, As Rick mentioned... I'm Stephanie, and I work with both Becky and Rick, and it's a privilege to be friends with both of them and to work on all of this Jesus-centered stuff and have conversations like this for, you know, our jobs, which is awesome. 
I am part of the team. As Rick said, I do a lot of writing for us. I'm also one of the co-hosts of They Say Podcast, which is a different show um, that I know Becky has mentioned a couple times for women. We focus on Jesus and also tell a lot of silly stories. Our friend Cammie is also on the show, and she's quite hilarious. So if you have a chance to come over and visit us on They Say as well. But it's great to be here. I'm very happy. So uh, one of the things, one of the things that binds the three of us together is that in various ways, we, we have all become ruined for Jesus. Mm. We are, our, our lives really do revolve around him in their own unique ways, but the, the orbit of our lives goes around Jesus, um, not because we came out of an environment that told us they had to, it's because we've each of us in our own way responded to his invitation in our lives now, orbit around him, and that is the deepest kindred you can have. Uh, so today, speaking of kindred, um, uh, we all feel a real kindredness with the Apostle Paul, because Paul was the most prominent Jesus-centered person in the world, and who still, his the orbit that he had around Jesus still infects our everyday life, because he wrote out of a perspective of being centered around Jesus. And as he uh, got older and older um, in his life, so he, he was the arguably one of, if not the smartest man on the face of the earth at the time. Based on his unique education, he not only went to the Harvard of his time, but he was mentored by the top professor of the Harvard of his time. And he was one of the select few in, in Gamaliel's entire life who was personally mentored by him. So uh, he, he had this incredible education and a natural intellect that made him quickly rise up the ranks of the religious elite. And then God, you know, Jesus, in his Tony Soprano moment, knocks Paul off a donkey, blinds him, and says, uh, what are you going to do now, Paul? going to follow me now, Paul? <laughs> I love that story. Um, and Paul says, yeah, I think I will. And uh, so Jesus gains the, great, the greatest intellect on the face of the earth with Paul, and then Paul launches into a life that eventually, um, as he gets older, becomes more and more centered around Jesus. How do we know that? Because in 1 Corinthians 2, um, he says this. He's, he's talking to the, the believers at Corinth, and he says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. So he's speaking hy hyperbolically here. I'll forget everything but Jesus Christ. He's trying to emphasize, hey, while I was with you, the only thing that really, really matters is let's talk about Jesus. We could get distracted by other things. No, I. as I get older, the only thing I really want to talk to you about is Jesus. And uh, so we all resonate with that idea. And in this current context of angst and tension and protests and what's going to happen and fear and all this other stuff, it's time for us to take a breather and refocus ourselves on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. That's where our foundation is. That's where we can breathe. So that's how we're going to play today, and here's what we've done. Um, again, I did this the other night with our 12 students in our around our dining room table, 
that we just did this now, and, th- and that's going to be the episode today, where we I simply gave a slip of paper to each of us, to Becky and Steph and I, and we just paused for a minute and asked Jesus, hey, pop a gospel passage into our head, just the, 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 the name of the gospel book, a chapter, and a verse, and let's just pop it into our head, Jesus. Um, and so we each paused, we were quiet, something that popped into our head, we put it on a slip of paper, and we don't even know if these are actual verses, because <laughs> we just wrote down numbers and a book of the, uh, one of the Gospels, so who knows, but I'm just leafing through the basket now, and I'm going to pull one of these out, and we're going to see what was written on there. Luke 24, 1. So let's turn to Luke 24, 1. Can you hear the flipping of our Bibles in the background? Luke 24, 1. You can follow along with this, this if you want. This is so exciting. Yeah. If you have a Bible, you can go to Luke 24, 1 as well, because this is uh, we're just doing this live. What we're going to do is take this passage and, and its context. So we're not just going to read a verse. We're going to read the context of the verse and understand what's going on. Um, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus and ask, uh, what's going on here? What, uh, what, where do we find the heart of Jesus in this? And we're going to explore what's going on, but actually we're looking for the heart of Jesus in this. We're going to pay attention to his heart. So let's see, we, found, we discover that Luke 24.1 is the story of the resurrection leading into the walk to Emmaus. So what do you say we, um, we read the whole thing? And as you listen, what, what we're going to do is listen to the story, pay ridiculous attention to Jesus as we're listening, and anything that jumps out at us about the heart of Jesus, we're going to make a note of it. Anything that jumps out at us about the heart of Jesus, or a question about the heart of Jesus, we're going to make a note of it, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation about it. So, here we go. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there, puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Well, then they remembered that he had said this, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his eleven disciples and everyone else what had happened. Well, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Ma- Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the dis- apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Well, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Well, they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, 
you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Well, this all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Well, some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Well, then Jesus took them through all the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And by this time they were nearing Emmaus and and the end of their journeys. Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As he sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. We'll stop there. So again, what we've just done is we just picked a random verse that popped into somebody's head, didn't even know what it was about, um, read the context of it, not just the verse. So we got the kind of the whole of the story, and what we learned about was the story of how, how the disciples discovered that the tomb was empty, and then Jesus, in this bizarre story of Jesus meeting two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize who he is, and they, in turn, retell him the whole story of himself, <laughs> Jesus patiently listening, and then Jesus essentially re-entering to that story and saying, you didn't get that right, let me explain it to you again. And then um, finally coming to Emmaus, breaking bread together, and in the breaking of the bread, they see him, for the first, they recognize who he is. Um, so that's this crazy story of the resurrection of Jesus, the di- disciples' discovery of it, and the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. So let's slow down and pay some ridiculous attention here to Jesus. What are some things that stuck out to us as we read this? What, what, where do we find the heart of Jesus in this, and what questions do we have about the heart of Jesus in this story? What stuck out to either of you? I think one of the first things that jumped out to me was Peter's reaction to the news that his tomb was empty. Hmm. I mean, he had been obviously ashamed of his conduct and how he had betrayed Jesus. And yet his first reaction was when everyone else was saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It said that he jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. And to me, that shows that he must have understood enough about Jesus to 
still want to go and seek him regardless of the shame that he felt. Like he must have spent enough time with him to know that that, that wasn't enough to, or at least to risk maybe some rejection or punishment or, or seeing him. And I, I think he just, he wasn't ready to give up on Jesus. He wasn't ready to give up on himself. Um, and I think that, that that tells us something about Peter, but it also tells us something about Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I, love, I love what you're saying here. It just reminds me of, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but Peter is such a central character in the story of Jesus. Um, and Peter is highlighted, I think, for particular reasons as a, as a model for our own discipleship. And so Peter is the one, again, who on that lonely hillside when Jesus drives the crowds away by asking people to eat his body and drink his blood nine times in a row, I mean, when, when Jesus asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? Because it's, it's a plausible question at that point. And Peter says, where else would I go? And what, what is happening here? Peter, when you said Peter understood enough of Jesus, and normally when we translate the word understood, it's all up here in our head. But there's a different kind of understanding that Peter is describing when he says, where else would I go? It has nothing to do with intellectual understanding of what Jesus just said or did. He's saying, I have an understanding of your heart, and your heart has captured my heart, so where else am I going to go? And, and Jesus delights in this response because, so getting back to where is the heart of Jesus in this, the heart of Jesus is after our heart. He wants our heart to experience his heart and be captured by it in such a way that we say to him, where else would I go? And even though we betray him and we shame ourselves and everything else in this moment you're talking about, mm -hmm. Steph, Peter goes, he's once again saying, where else would I go? Mm -hmm. He's saying, I have to go to the tomb. Even if I pay the price for this because I betrayed him, even if I'm shamed all over again, I can't help myself. Mm -hmm. that's, what he, that's what's really happening mm -hmm. here. I can't help myself. And I think this is why Peter was such an intimate with Jesus, because he was one of the first to say, I get it, Jesus. I see your heart, and you've captured my heart. Anyway, anything you want to add to that, Becky? <clears throat> this story is one that um, <clears throat> constantly, it just reminds me that, that Jesus didn't create a bunch of robots that he can just, you know, program to believe what he wants to believe. So here you are, you've got these disciples who have spent so much time with him. There have been other people who spent way less time with him who immediately knew he was God. And they're still here questioning whether or not he really is the Messiah and instead of the, the fact that that God didn't made it so that he wouldn't be, they wouldn't be recognized so that once again he could help guide them and allow them to accept that on their own he doesn't he doesn't force us to just see everything and he's not a god who um who just explains everything that shows us everything he he lets us kind of wrestle with that and um, discover it on our own so you used the word discover a couple of times there and i just love that word and you see that this lived out uh, even in how Jesus joins the two disciples walking the road to Emmaus. What does Jesus do? <laughs> He's playful in this. He goes, uh, hey, what are you discussing so intently as you're walking along? As and if he doesn't know. Right, and he's incognito, 
And he's, I can just imagine him, sometimes I picture like uh, Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. He like wears this hood that, <laughs> you know, shadows his face. And I picture Jesus looking like that somehow on the road to Emmaus with this smile underneath the hood. Like, hey, what are you guys discussing? And so intently as you walk along. And then they, they, they kind of said, like, what? You haven't heard what's been happening? And Jesus innocently again goes, what things? What things have been happening? It's the invitation. Mm -hmm. He's trying to... um, So what do we know about the heart of Jesus? He likes to invite. He never likes to force. He always likes to invite. And what is he inviting here? He's inviting these guys to tell the story as they understand it, so to put the stuff on the table. So he's, he's not telling them... Um, or trying to correct them from the start or telling them what happened. He's wanting them to put their stuff on the table so that he can work with it then. And patiently and lovingly. He's just, you know, he didn't... We get irritated with people when they don't get it, you know, like, you should know this by now, right? That's our natural tendency. But he he's just continues to be patient with them and lovingly lead them along that way. And, uh, and what he leads them into is this <laughs> moment of irony. So now, unbeknownst to them... They are telling Jesus the story of Jesus. And along the way, let's slow down and pay attention to how they tell the story of Jesus. What is it that they get right, and what is it that they don't get right in describing the story of Jesus to Jesus? What do you pick out that they get right, and what do you pick out that they don't get right? Immediately, they had come to the conclusion that he must not have been the Messiah. Yeah. They called, him, they called him a prophet. <laughs> you know, I mean, we were hoping he was the Messiah, but obviously he can't be because he died. So he must have just been a prophet. Yeah. I, I mean, that just is blaring, isn't it? That, that, so what would it be like, just to put yourself in the shoes here. So you go disguised to some of your best friends and you say, Becky says to them, hey, what do you think about Becky anyway? <laughs> And they start to describe Becky to you mm-hmm. in a way that is very different than who you really are. So what are you feeling in that moment? It's like, what? Well, well she was really a fraud. <laughs> she, said all, she said all this stuff, and it wasn't true in the end. I mean, we really, I, we really like Becky, but boy, was she overblown in what she said she, she was. She really exaggerated on a few things. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what comes out, and then let's look at how Jesus responds. Let's, let's slow down and pay attention to how he responds. What do we notice about how he responds to them? He says something. I mean, he's playful, 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 and now this seems really hard. Mm-hmm. You foolish people. So, so sometimes I encourage people as a way to explore Jesus in a different way is to imagine that he says some of the things he says in the Bible differently then you've always imagined him saying it. So we always imagine Jesus saying everything serious, like one note serious. So let's imagine now that the very first thing he says to them, he says with a big smile on his face instead of a finger-wagging scowl on his face. So he says, you foolish people, what if we translated that then to, you dorks? (laughs) What are you talking about? So he starts off by being... uh, overly familiar if you're a stranger on the road to Emmaus <laughs> and you've just been told the story he he says something that's overly familiar <laughs> to them you foolish guys so what else do we notice here 
about the heart of Jesus? He asks a lot of questions. Hmm. You know, he's, you know, why are you frightened? Um, why are your hearts filled with doubt? He, he's not making accusations. He's just kind of inviting them to answer questions. Um, what does that has, tell you about his heart? The to, fact that he asks a lot of questions. That he wants you to discover him on your own, that he doesn't want to program you. He wants to just invite you in and, and play with you in a way where you come to know him in a different way. And in, it's not just you're told what you should do um, and then go do it. Hmm. And so the fact that Jesus asked so many questions, I think, also says he treats us with great dignity. So he's inviting us to explore and discover things together. He's not uh, laying it out for us. Uh, in fact, the night that I was with the kids in our small group, we were talking about, why does Jesus sometimes say things that are confusing or hard to understand? And so the whole group had this conversation, and out of that came one of the kids that said, I have a teacher, I ha the best teachers I have at school often say things that I that really confound me in the moment. I end up chewing on them all week long, and then I have this like light bulb go off at the end of the week. And I said, I said to her, why do you like that so much? And she said, because he treats me with respect. Mm. He's inviting me to discover with him, not just be spoon-fed what he knows. I love that. Mm. And she said, this was an aha for her. She said, oh, I see that in Jesus that he's inviting us and giving us dignity to join him in, his, in the discovery of the truth. What else do we see about how he responded to these guys initially? He says, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? So that's the first initial mm -hmm. response. What else do we see about his heart in this? He starts teaching. I mean, he this is his opportunity to share the full story of the Messiah and to remind them about what he had already said before. And he went all the way back to Moses and kind of laid it all out for them. And not, I mean, from what it says, it doesn't seem like he did it in a, in a like, how could you not have known this? You're so stupid. Mm-hmm. Because they ate with him afterwards. So had he presented it that way, it seems like maybe he would have ostracized these strangers. But he, he clearly taught them in a way that was intriguing enough for them that they wanted to invite him to spend the night with them and hear more about what he had to say. So based on what you just said, what do we know about his heart? Why would somebody do that? Why would, why would somebody um, uh, hear what they said and then say, let me set you straight? Let me give you the truth. Let me put this in context so that you understand properly what's going on here. What's the heart of somebody who does that? What motivates somebody to do that? That's the question. So what are some possible reasons why he's motivated to do this? I mean, my initial reaction here is that whenever you f start to fully understand something and your your heart can grow in that way where you're like, oh, I get the whole picture now, suddenly you just want more of that. Like, well, tell me more about that. Um, to me, maybe he didn't at, at that point feel like he had, had really closed the circle with them on the whole reason for this epic story. Yeah. So 
let me let me give a kind of a crazy example. Let's let's say that you ask your kids, um, how does a, an investment in a stock work? I mean, how how do you actually make money? And they say, well, I think you make money on the stock market by you give them your money, and then other people see that you've given money to that, so they give money too, and you get a portion of that. And you say, well, that's not quite right. Let me explain to you what um, compound interest is and how the whole collective stock market goes up in value, so your individual stock might go up in value. Let me explain that to you. So it's, it's kind of an act of generosity to help level set what the actual truth about that thing is. And what happens often, I can feel this reaction in myself when somebody explains something to me that I had kind of a wrong idea about. I go, oh, well, that makes sense now. So it's a kind of a freeing thing to now all of a sudden you understand something that you hadn't gotten quite right when somebody throws in the information that you were missing. So I can imagine them going, they said their hearts are burning on the way to Emmaus. Why were their hearts burning? Because all of a sudden, oh my gosh, this makes sense to me now. I didn't, didn't understand it before, but the way you put that, it all makes sense. And so their hearts are burning because the truth of the narrative they're caught up in, this epic story is starting to dawn on them. Oh my gosh, you mean, oh, oh. So this dawning understanding of the truth. And then what happens after that is, here's a crazy thing. Um, they were nearing Emmaus in the end of their journey, and Jesus acted as if he was going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. What does it mean that he acted as if he was going on? What? And why would he do that? It's such a strange thing, like, well, I'm out. I'm going to such and such. So one of my favorite questions, <laughs> yeah. Such and such. One of my favorite questions <laughs> to ask. Make up words. Yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> questions to ask. And that, that's well, you wouldn't be the Becky Nader if you didn't make up words. One of my favorite questions to ask is, and this is a great place to ask. Ask it is, what are all of the possible reasons why he did this? Let's just brainstorm. We don't have to arrive at the right reason. He's playing hard to get. He's playing Ooh, hard to get. Good that's one. a good. What are other possible reasons why he's doing this? He wants to be invited. Yeah. He he wants them. He, he's acting as if he's going on, because once again, he's inviting, not pushing himself. Yeah, he wants it to be their choice. Why? Why because would he, he want it to be their choice? always wants us to choose him. And therefore, we know about his heart, the fact that he always wants us to invite it, to ask him in, instead of him just assuming... Pushing his way in. Right. So what do we know about his heart if he's always got invitation on his mind? It's so risky, you know. Oh it, wow, it's that's so, good. It's so risky. I mean, they imagine if they granted he could have he appeared in in lots of different ways, but they could have said no, good night, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten the full story. I mean, maybe he shared more, and then they wouldn't have gone back to the eleven disciples and told them everything that, that they had heard, and it wouldn't have spread from there. Um, you know, it, it, it's just risky to to say, well, take it or leave it. I love that that it, it's he's not only risking he's asking them he's inviting them to risk mm. and he invites people to risk in almost every encounter. So let's let's think through what what risk is doing here when Jesus is asking them to risk and he's taking a risk himself. I think what he's doing is he's creating mo- momentum in them. So when they 
do the inviting, they're the ones moving toward him. And hit and I think in Jesus' heart, what he most wants is to see our momentum going toward him. So he leaves this gap of invitation that we can move into, and then we are going. We're walking and sometimes running towards him. That's what he wants. And again, it offers us a kind of dignity that he's not forcing himself on us. He's inviting us as lovers to pursue him. The thing I immediately think about is all the people that we know in our lives who are not close to Jesus, and there is this gap that Jesus is allowing between him and and whoever these people are, um, and how as outsiders, we really wish he'd push, because it's hard to see the distance between them and Jesus, because we know how much of a difference it makes when you follow him with your whole heart. Um, but he's just risky that way. And he, he will allow this space um, because he's wanting an open heart. And it challenges me to not want to jump into that gap and like try and facilitate a, you know, a connection, like be a middleman. Um, it's, it's just Jesus is way more comfortable with that gap than as an outsider I am. And it, it takes risk on my part to trust him in those gaps, that he knows what he's doing, and that, and that he's doing it because of love. Good. So we have one last little odd thing that happens in this story, and then, and then we'll stop. So then he agrees to go, go, go home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he takes the bread and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and suddenly their eyes are opened. So what are what's going on here? What why why is it that the story starts by saying God kept them from recognizing him and then he chooses this moment to take the the veil off whatever was keeping them from recognizing him he suddenly lifts it off when he breaks the bread. What are some possible reasons why? And why did he appear and then disappear later? What is with all this appearing and disappearing? <laughs> it's freaky. <laughs> not right. <laughs> I mean, I definitely just from a, a tactical standpoint, they went on to tell the disciples. So it, he needed that part of the message to be like, oh, I saw him. Mm-hmm. I, you know, he really did. It wasn't just that someone robbed the tomb. It wasn't just that we the body's gone, but we can't find it. It's that I saw him. So he, he, he revealed himself for that purpose. Yeah. And he so, and he, he's revealed in the breaking of the bread, this might be a massive joke, <laughs> in the sense that, I don't mean joke as a throwaway, I mean that previously he said, if you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. And then he breaks the bread, and he's gone. <laughs> Another risky invitation. It's deep. <laughs> so, he breaks the bread, <laughs> and... Do they remember? Oh, remember he said, mm-hmm. we'll have to eat his body and drink his blood if we want any part of him. Will they remember? It would be, to, I just got to say, it would be just like Jesus to throw that deal out there and have it explode in understanding, As the, even as these guys go back and tell the other disciples, well, here's what happened. He broke the bread, and then, he di- and then we saw him, and then he disappeared, and the, other, and the guy's looking around the table like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> What have we been eating and drinking today? <laughs> it's, it's just, it could be just simply 
Jesus not only underscoring his reality, but having some fun. Well, and the story really speeds up at this point. You know, there's like the whole book of Luke. And then there's this very short period of time where Jesus gets in and he then he leaves and he ascends to heaven. So the story kind of speeds up. I feel like he had a lot that he had to get done um, between coming back, revealing himself and sending the Holy Spirit. It was like, hey, I I don't have time to mess around. So I'm just going to do all these miracles that are profound. And then I'm going to get on to heaven because <laughs> earth is tiresome. There you go. Well, this is what it feels like to slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's fun. You learn new things. Um, and to wrap up, let's, let's just, uh, each of us, share uh, about a, a way that, that has helped us to read the Bible, that has helped us to not only understand the Bible, but understand the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. What's, what's a way that each of us have, have done that that has been really helpful for us? Who'd like to go first? I'll go first. Um, one of the ways that I like to do it, um, and actually, Rick, this is something that you, you touch on in The Jesus-Centered Life, which is to kind of ask the question, what is the opposite of this? So mm-hmm. I like to read stories, especially ones that are so familiar to me, maybe things I've read times before, things that I've heard people talk a lot about. Um, and rather than just take it at what it says, I like to ask, well, what is what is the opposite of this? When Jesus says that you're sheep, what's the what is that? What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of being a sheep? Um, and it's it's fun. I I always find it, it interesting. Um, and there's always just a lot of new insight. It, and it's not just the New Testament. I mean, the Ten Commandments. If you think about well, what is the opposite of what these commandments are saying, it can be really insightful mm-hmm. and just give you ideas that you wouldn't have normally thought of. It's good. I like that. You know, um, try that one. one thing I do is I do this a lot. Um, I love music, and I love singer-songwriters, so I really value the melding of the lyrics with the song. And so I'm drawn to the Psalms, because those were originally songs. They were lyric meshed with song, with music. And so I'm drawn to the Psalms, so I will often, when I'm talking to Jesus... I'll say, like, uh, in the morning, Jesus, where would you like me to go in the Psalms today? As a way of starting the conversation with me about something that you think is important for me to pay attention to. So I'll just say, pop a number into my head between 1 and 151, which is that's how many Psalms there are, and a verse next to it. And it's playful. Like, I, I'll, I just write down whatever pops into my head then. Sometimes, uh, probably one out of ten times, I write down a passage that isn't even in the Psalms. And what do you do then? Oh, no, this doesn't quote-unquote work. I don't care. We're all just playing. We're messy people, so it doesn't matter to me. I just ask again. So always, I can say without fail, when I go to wherever that number takes me, it starts a conversation with Jesus I needed to have that morning. It's uncanny. Um, So I don't know if that's just... uh, a, a, a sort of a, a free gift he's given me to say, this is a way that you and I can, can talk, or whether it's more universal, but it's worth trying. If you've never tried that, just ask him to pop, pop a number in your head between 1 and 151 and a verse next to it. Go there and then ask him, what's for me here, Jesus? What do you have for me here? Show me. And then he will, or he won't. <laughs> 
So I think that vocabulary is really important. And when I first became a Christian, I, I realized that my vocabulary was um, different than the way that the Bible described a lot of words. So word study has always been something that I've really enjoyed. It's super nerdy, but I'm going to tell you how I do it. I just pick a word like joy, and then I go to the concordance in the back of your Bible where it has all the verses that are related to joy. And then I just read them and I write down what I learned about that word. And it actually, over the years, has really reshaped the vocabulary um, and helped me separate it from what culture says about those words. Mm. Um, so that's something I like to do. That probably sounds really nerdy. Theirs sounded way more fun than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Not no, true. these are all these are all different uh, uh, different apparatus on the playground. It, it, there's no formula. There's no recipe. It's just what what can we try? So we encourage you to try. Um, and if you've never uh, tried a different way of reading the Bible, try one of these ways. And if you followed along with us today in, in Luke 24, um, and you noticed something about Jesus that we didn't bring up, we'd love for you to post your insight um, on the site uh, where this podcast is posted. You can, you can write in what you noticed about mm-hmm. Jesus that maybe we didn't. So please do that. And you know what? Thanks for being a part of this community. We don't take it lightly. We love you guys. We're grateful to have kindred spirits surround us as we explore Jesus. Remember, you can find out more information about everything we talked about here on the site I just mentioned, the JesusCenteredLife.com. You can find our podcast section there and click on episode 11. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes if you want to be a regular listener. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and it's a podcast from Lifetree. We'll talk next time. See you then.